today we're delighted to share with you the ideas and insights into silence in educational environments. And we have two wonderful presenters, Professor Peter Verstraete, who is a professor of history of education and AMI trainer, Umar Amani. And she will speak on the theme of silence and highlight how silence in education can both be an instrument and an outcome of the practice of education as an aid to life. Now, both speakers will speak for approximately 30 minutes. And after that, we'll have 15 minutes or so in which we can deal with some of the questions that you have asked. I think this is uh, topic really resonates, this, although the, the, the title is silence, it does, the, the, the theme really resonates with people. Just the other day, I came across uh, a small passage on, 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 on silence by Maria Montessori, and she said it's of enormous value, and she sees it as a necessity, uh, which is why we have to familiarize children with the concept and experience of quiet and peace. We'll start with Peter Verstraete, who, as I said, is a professor of history of education at the Faculty of Psychology and Educational Sciences at the University of Leuven, or Leuven in Belgium. He's president of the Belgium Dutch Association for the History of Education and curator of the Leuven Disability Film Festival. He's recently published a book, Silence in the Classroom, and I'm sure he'll draw a lot from that, from that. And in that book, he explores the history of Western pedagogical approaches to silence in schools. So Peter, when you're ready. And that's my internet connection will remain stable. Uh, so let's uh, cross our fingers. So thank you very much, Yoga, uh, for that uh, uh, kind introduction. And also, obviously, for the invitation uh, to present some of my ideas with regard to the educational value of silence uh, to this uh, wonderful audience. Uh, I'm really glad uh, to see all of these, for me at least, unfamiliar uh, faces. And I do hope uh, that you will uh, appreciate what I'm going uh, to say. So uh, I thought a long time about how I was going to introduce my talk to you and I in the end decided to do that by pointing towards some discussions, uh, educational techniques and strategies uh, that are currently being debated in contemporary schools. Uh, and so I, I brought actually two uh, uh, examples and the two examples uh, uh, for me are very revealing for the fact that silence uh, is something that you could say is a bit in danger or endangered in contemporary schools. Uh, so the first example which I would like to refer to uh, is the example of the noise cancelling headphones. Uh, so I'm not sure how this is in other countries, but in the country I'm currently living in, so Belgium, and actually I do live in the Dutch-speaking part of Belgium, so Flanders, uh, and in the school where my kids uh, are going, I increasingly see noise-canceling headphones uh, uh, being presented by teachers as a kind of solution to a classroom environment that is increasingly becoming noisy, 
or lounge. And so I think that the presence of these noise-canceling headphones kind of tells us something about uh, something that is going on in contemporary uh, schools. Uh, so that is uh, the first example which I wanted to refer to. The second example I wanted to refer to uh, kind of is a, is a contrasting one. Uh, it's, it's, uh, it's a different one. It's an example that does not really reveal that silence is kind of endangered or in danger, uh, but that silence still up till today is absolutely valued as a positive thing in educational environments, in schools, in classrooms. And so what I wanted to highlight is a discussion we had here in Flanders uh, a couple of years ago, where a particular director of a primary school decided to abolish uh, the school bell. And so uh, this director was uh, really much in favor of what he called a silent school. And he referred to the sound of the school bell as something which, according to him, was really too disciplinary. It kind of forced students uh, to do things uh, that uh, uh, are, of course, interesting and useful, but that prevented them uh, to become, in a way, liberated or emancipated, uh, so to say. And so in order to bypass that particular situation, this director said, well, we have to really get rid of our school bell. Uh, the analog, uh, analog uh, school bell or, or the digital school bell. It didn't matter for this particular director. And so in order to make sure that even without the school bell, the children arrive in classes uh, at the right time, uh, he decided to put everywhere in the school corridors and also on the playground, a lot of clocks, uh, a lot of uh, watches uh, that children could use in order to come to class on time. So I think these two examples and uh, the noise cancelling headphones on the one hand and the example of the silent school on the other hand uh, demonstrate that a lot of debates are actually going on with regard to silence and the value of silence uh, in contemporary uh, primary uh, schools, secondary schools, but definitely also kindergartens. And when I, as a historian of education, interested in sounds and silences, try to categorize the debates that are actually ongoing, uh, I am uh, able, or well, I think I was able to distinguish between two dominant trends within these kind of discussions. So on the one hand, uh, you have authors, you have scholars uh, that emphasize uh, the fact that sounds and silences have to be approached as natural phenomena. Silence, for instance, is being uh, understood as the absence of physical vibrations. And within that particular trend uh, of the debates, that particular category of the debates, uh, there is also many times a reference to devices like these. Uh, uh, this is a very simple sound level meter, and it kind of uh, exemplifies the fact that within this category of debates, uh, sounds and silences are being objectified by referring to a number of decibels 
uh, or the absence, uh, the total absence uh, of decibels. And I think next to that objectifying approach uh, towards silence, there also exists uh, another approach. And I have to admit that I personally am more in favor, but also more acquainted uh, with that other approach towards silence. And this approach is sometimes called with a difficult word, uh, a social constructivist approach towards silence. And what is being done here in this particular uh, perspective on silence is that one say, says, well, okay, silence definitely is a kind of natural phenomena. We cannot deny that. Uh, but on top of that, we should not forget that human beings always interact in a particular way with parts of our natural environment, with parts of our natural world. And as a consequence, uh, they assign particular meanings to that part of our natural realm. And those meanings, and this is very important, they can change throughout time. And they also change uh, when you go from one culture to another culture. Uh, so uh, I think it is important when you reflect on the educational value of silence uh, that you take into account these two different, often con contrasting uh, approaches towards silence. On the one hand, an objectifying approach, and on the other hand, a social constructivist approach. And me personally, I am very much interested in a social constructivist approach, and in particular, with regard to the historical uh, reconstructions uh, that uh, different scholars have made with regard to silence. Because uh, if uh, uh, I look at the debates uh, and I uh, try to analyze the debates uh, that, that uh, follow the objectifying approach, often, History is kind of reduced to this linear reconstruction, not only linear, but also pessimistic uh, reconstruction of the history of silence. And I will explain myself a bit more. Huh? So from that perspective, uh, authors say, well, back in the days, huh, for example, in the Greek Roman times, uh, all was good, all was fine because People lived in silent environments, in a silent world. And it was only due to the uh, emergence uh, of industrialization and capitalization that the human being, uh, humankind, started to live in a very loud and a noisy environment. Uh, think about all the uh, construction works that you encounter when you move from your house to, to, to your work. Think about uh, the sounds and all the, the noises that are being produced by airplanes, but also cars that we use in order to satisfy our uh, uh, mobile needs. Uh, so you, you, you could say, etc., etc. So for me, this is a very simplistic reconstruction of the history of silence. Uh, and I am not the only one uh, that uh, argues in, in, in that line. Uh, and I would like to refer 
to a wonderful book, which actually for me kind of triggered my exploration into the history of silence. And it's a book which was published some years ago by a British cultural historian. His name is David Handy. And he published this book, Noise, uh, A Human History of Sound and Listening. And in, the book, in this book, he has a couple of uh, uh, chapters that deal also with the history of silence. And in those chapters, he says, well, please let us not forget that also in the Greek-Roman time periods, you had, for instance, philosophers who already were complaining about the noises and the sounds that uh, disturbed uh, their concentration while working on a philosophical paper. And one of those philosophers uh, identified by David Handy uh, was, for instance, uh, the Greek Roman, uh, the Roman, I have to say, philosopher uh, Seneca, who really was disturbed uh, and also wrote about it in his, uh, in his memoirs uh, by the hair cutters uh, who were working uh, on the street where he had uh, his house. So to, 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 to make things very clear from the beginning, uh, my personal approach towards the history of silence in schools, in classrooms, is more definitely more in line with the nuanced approaches of uh, historians like David Handy, uh, but you, uh, I could also name uh, uh, other ones. Uh, so I do not take on uh, the natural, the objectifying approach, but I try to nuance uh, that particular uh, discussion in my latest uh, in my latest book. And indeed, uh, this is the cover of the book, and I'm really proud. Uh, uh, but, uh, on this on this particular cover, uh, it represents uh, a chalkboard uh, where the word the Dutch word for silence stilte uh, is being written on, and I think that it actually kind of wonderfully illustrates uh, the enormous presence of silence in the history of our education. I mean. From the moment when I started to look into the history of silence from an educational perspective, I, I immediately was overwhelmed by an enormous amount of historical source material where teachers, directors, but also administrative staff, uh, they uh, uh, reflected on uh, the educational value of silence. And this was not only done actually in written source material, but it was actually also made visible in paintings and drawings that uh, date back to, for instance, uh, the 15th or the 16th century. And I would like to take a moment in order to present to you uh, a couple of paintings from those uh, uh, centuries, uh, so the 15th and the 16th century. Uh, I did not bring them with me, but I'll try to uh, describe what was uh, on the painting. Uh, so, first of all, there was a painting of a Dutch painter, Adriaan Brouwer. Uh, it's a 16th century painting that represents, uh, represents a class scene. And on the painting, you can see a very chaotic classroom. There is a teacher. Absolutely, 
there is a teacher, but the teacher is uh, uh, actually punishing in a very physical way one of the pupils. And everything that you see on the painting is completely packed and uh, by, by sounds, I would say. Uh, what you are confronted with is definitely not a silent, disciplined classroom. On the contrary, everything is chaotic. All of the children, they tend to talk uh, uh, to one another. They are laughing. Uh, there is absolutely no discipline uh, to be seen on the painting. And the same can be seen on another painting uh, that was made by Jan Steen. And the title of the painting is The Village Teacher uh, the, or The School Teacher. And here we are confronted with a class scene where the teacher is completely uh, silent. Uh, uh, he is actually asleep. Uh, and as a consequence, uh, you can see pupils who were peeing in a bottle. There are animals walking around in the classroom. You have pupils of six years old who were mingled with pupils of 40 or 50 years old, etc., etc. So the idea that we sometimes have that all classrooms in our educational history would have been silent is completely false. Uh, that is completely false. Actually, the silent classical disciplinary classroom uh, that we uh, tend to imagine for ourselves as being typical for our educational past was only invented towards the end of the 17th uh, century. Uh, so in uh, 1695, uh, there was this French uh, priest, uh, Jean-Baptiste de La Salle, uh, who uh, founded the so-called uh, uh, Christian schools. And in the Christian schools, uh, it, he, he uh, implemented two important reforms. So first of all, from individual education, one had to move to classical education. So one method for a group of 25 up till 30 people. That was definitely, according to De La Salle, much more time efficient. And the second important reform that he implemented was that he said, well, in order to make sure that the teacher is able to teach for such a group of students, everything has to be silent. Especially the students, the pupils, they have to remain silent. And I think that yeah, this uh, very important publication by De La Salle and his educational practices they kind of triggered an enormous longing in the West towards silent and classical, but also disciplined classrooms. And I think that, well, I'm coming uh, to, to, uh, to Maria Montessori now because uh, this, this all led to a kind of very dry, and disciplinary educational environment where Maria Montessori at the end of the 19th century uh, started to criticize. Uh, and uh, because time is, is running out very quickly, I, I notice, and I could go on for hours, I'm afraid. Uh, so I have to discipline myself a little bit uh, here. 
And so let, let us move to, to, to someone you, are, of course, are very much acquainted with, uh, the, the reform educator, uh, Maria Montessori. And so in my exploration of the educational history, I immediately came across uh, her 1909 uh, famous publication, uh, the Maria Montessori, the Montessori Method. And in that book, in that particular book, I found it very remarkable that she heavily criticized traditional schooling for the fact that students were forced, were obliged to sit still, to remain silent, and actually only to listen to a talkative teacher. And so, yeah, her critique on traditional schooling was really centered, according to me, to the fact that uh, there was this kind of deadly, uh, so deadly silence that reigns in traditional schools. And so on the basis of that critique, you very uh, easily could draw the conclusion that for Maria Montessori, silence actually did not play a law play a role at all anymore in her own method. And that is totally uh, not true, of course, uh, because in that same book, uh, the Maria Montessori method, uh, she presents to the reader several uh, silent exercises. And uh, I'm pretty sure that many of you already will have heard uh, about these silent exercises, but let me still uh, rephrase or, or summarize uh, uh, the, three, the three examples, or at least point towards one very interesting example. And I would like to share a picture with you that wonderfully illustrates uh, this, uh, uh, this, this silent exercise. So here's a picture uh, taken from uh, one of the issues published by the Montessori Educational Association in 1915, in April, to be precise, uh, and the title of the journal was Freedom uh, for the Child. And you see here a blackboard where the word silence is written on, and all of the children being very silent, and they kind of seem asleep, but of course they aren't. Uh, the teacher on this picture is absent. And that is also how Maria Montessori described it in her book. And so Maria Montessori, she describes this particular exercise and, and, and she emphasizes that the teacher needs to move towards one of the neighboring rooms. And from that room, she said the teacher then after a while had by making use of what she called a whispering voice, uh, call each child uh, by its name. And only when the child uh, had heard his or her name, he or she could uh, walk towards Maria Montessori and again uh, start uh, making uh, sounds. And I wanted to briefly emphasize this particular exercise because according to me, uh, it also refers to the origin of these uh, silent exercises. And that is very intriguing because the origin actually is a kind of medical diagnosis. Uh, so as all of you uh, obviously know, uh, Maria Montessori, she also was trained uh, as a doctor. 
And during her training, but also her internships uh, in uh, psychiatric asylums, where she worked with uh, disabled children, she was uh, confronted with this particular diagnostic procedure where doctors uh, try to uh, try to diagnose individuals uh, as deaf individuals or not. And in order to make sure that people uh, who um, were, were, were read aloud something, they did not read from the lips of the doctors and so kind of compensated for their lack of hearing. In order to, uh, to bypass that particular problem, doctors started to make use of a whispering voice. So it's a voice that you can hear, but you cannot see on the lips. Uh, and so Maria Montessori, she actually uh, became acquainted with that particular exercise, but that particular diagnostic procedure, and she took it up uh, and reworked it, rebranded it uh, into her uh, silent exercises. And so, yeah, what for me is very interesting uh, in how Maria Montessori presents her thoughts on silence is that actually what she did at the start of the 20th century is that she, according to me, reinvented silence. Huh? So in contrast to the deadly silences that reigned in schools, classrooms throughout the 19th century, she pleaded for uh, a kind of active uh, silence, a much more positive silence, uh, a silence that enabled the child to liberate itself from all the power structures uh, that suppressed it uh, up till uh, that particular moment. And for me, this is, as a historian, very interesting because it wonderfully demonstrates that the way we conceptualize silence, the way we make use of silence, it cannot be disconnected from the society you're living in and from the societies you are moving towards. And because Maria Montessori, she wanted to educate children, not anymore for the traditional 19th century society, uh, because then you only needed docile individuals. No, she was already thinking about a new society, uh, the society where people needed to become productive, needed to become creative and active. And in that sense, she kind of reworked, she rebranded all of the silent practices that were in vogue uh, in uh, traditional uh, schools. And I think that is for me as a historian of education, uh, very, very interesting uh, to take up. And let me conclude by just pointing towards uh, a recent uh, initiative we took. And I just want to share this, uh, this uh, uh, picture with you. So I do hope that you can see it. Uh, it's, uh, it's a group of primary school children uh, that are sitting uh, uh, on a green carpet and there was a huge dice. And this is actually a scene taken from an exhibition that is currently on display here in Leuven, uh, which I curated, uh, which is actually also based on the book which I published. Uh, and so what we want to do here is to make children sensitive for the value of silence. Uh, we invited an artist uh, to come up with particular drawings 
and we invented a kind of play uh, that uh, enabled uh, the children to draw with the dice and then to move towards a particular part uh, of the exhibition where they are uh, presented uh, parts of this very intriguing, wonderful history uh, of uh, educational silences. And I think I have to stop here in order to uh, allow Uma to, uh, to follow up and to uh, continue this uh, wonderful exchange of ideas about the educational value of silence. I look forward to your questions, comments, or suggestions. So thank you very much uh, for your attention. Okay, Peter, thank you very much uh, indeed. That was a, uh, a great talk, very enlightening. And I loved seeing the, your final slide, making the children sensitive to the value of silence. Um, I also particularly liked how you described um, the paintings that illustrate education, schools, teachers of the past. I've tried to type up a few names in, in the chat, but it would be nice if you could share these with us, uh, also the, the, the books that you've uh, referred to, so that when we do a follow-up uh, mailing on this, uh, we can include those resources for people to, yeah, that'd be very nice. So thank you, Peter, uh, you will stay on and, to, and we'll see if there's um, questions for you to be answered at, at the end, but for now, uh, great stuff. Thank you very much, Peter. And it's over to, to Uma. Thank you, Yoke, and thank you so much, Peter, for a wonderful introduction to the history of the role of silence in education. Okay. Yeah. In the West, I should uh, emphasize, you know. Um, well, I just do a quick introduction of you, Uma. Will that be okay? okay. Yeah, <laughs> you can live with that. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, Uma has um, quite a few uh, diplomas to her name, the three to six training, which you took in India with Mr. Yorston and Mr. Swami, who were both trained by Maria Montessori. Uma also holds the 6 to 12 diploma from the Monty Training Center of New England. And she's been an AMI trainer at the three to six level since 2010. She is director of training three to six at the Montessori Institute of North Texas since 2014. And to put it a little colloquially, if I may, <laughs> Uma, you know your Montessori stuff. So with your particular interest in the study of Maria Montessori's writings, you will definitely be able to bring insightful connections around the concept and outcomes of silence. So thank you very much. And here you go. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. I was so eager to jump into this discussion. So um, thank you, Peter. Again, you know, your work has provoked me to stop and reflect on the role of silence in Montessori practice. And these are the reflections that I want to share with you today. And I will begin with uh, the very well-known silence game that Peter referred to that we play in the children's house uh, for children with children from three to six years of age. And again, I do want to describe it a little bit and also to think about why is it a part of the what we do in the children's houses. 
So like much else that we do in the uh, in uh, our uh, CASA environments today, uh, the silence game began with children in, in the first CASA in San Lorenzo back in 1907. It was just a few months after the start of the CASA and the children had settled into a bustling community, joyfully participating in the activities of daily living. And one day, Dr. Montessori walked into the casa holding uh, an infant in her arms. And she was fascinated by the calm and quiet of the baby. And as all the children in the casa ran towards her and clustered around her, she quietly shared her observations of the baby with them. As she spoke quietly about how still the baby was and how quiet its breathing, she noticed that, oh, there was an extraordinary stillness that was coming in among the people, among the children who were watching, and a quiet was emerging among them. And they, she saw that the children who were observing were also exercising great control over their movements to achieve the same calm and quiet and stillness as the baby. What astonished Montessori was that the next time she came for a visit that the children clamored again to play the silence game. And so the game evolved to what we now do in the classrooms, where we first make, first practice making silence, showing children how they can arrive at silence by controlling the movements of every part of their body. And then we extend that silence while we play the game where every child is called to join the guide while maintaining that silence. So let's think about a little bit, you know. That silence game that we play with our young children in the, from three to six years of age, that silence game begins with an invitation. And we need the child of a, a agreement of every child in the group in order to play this game. And this invitation may take many forms. It could be a note on the board, a, a note played on a bell, or even a whisper to one child that ripples through the community. But once the invitation is accepted, every child finds a comfortable spot and then begins to exert control over their actions to be still and quiet till the group arrives at silence. Initially, we do guide this process, but over time, the children are able to do this spontaneously. And what happens next is that the guide may be seated in one corner of the room or even a space around the corner as Peter uh, referred to it in his uh, talk. And the guide calls the children one by one in the aphonic voice, which says, which is a whispering voice, a voice with a voiceless voice where I say, Right? So the child who's called gets up and walks to the guide, trying not to disturb the silence. They really have to listen to hear their voice. And then they get up and walk to the guide, trying not to disturb the silence. And when they reach the guide, they settle down and they have to keep maintaining, maintaining silence because there are other children who are still being called. So when the child guide calls the name of each child, even in an aphonic voice, what happens is that the silence is disturbed suddenly. There's a slight ripple in that silence. And when the child gets up and moves across the room, again, there is that ripple in that silence. 
And it is wonderful, you know, I can still recall the children walking with such, trying to make such minimum noise so that they're not disturbing the noise. They exert so much control to try to keep the disturbance to the minimum. And then the guide lets that ripple settle before the next name is called. And this is repeated 25, 30 times till all the children have been called and gathered. Only then is the silence broken with a soft song or a bell, and then the children disperse back to work, to whatever they were doing before the game. So this silence that is created in the silence game is not an imposition of the adult. It is a, not a result of obedience to the will of another. It is the result of the choice of every child to align with that group's aspiration to create silence. This silence then is an expression of the child's power to choose and to act in ways that align with the group. When children sustain that silence, even after their name is called, they come and sit down and they continue to sustain the silence till everyone in the group has been called. It is a recognition of the need of every member to experience this and the responsibility of each one of us to support everyone else in the group. And in the end, when we succeed, it's a celebration. So it is critical to remember that the silence game that we play, that the silence that we arrive at is the outcome of much preparation. Through working with various activities in practical life and sensorial, the children have achieved control and coordination of movements. They have refined sensory perception so that they're aware of the slightest sound. They have a sense of belonging in the community and an understanding of how their actions impact the group, right? The game then is an opportunity to discover one's capacity of mastery over oneself. The silence game is a cooperative undertaking. That silence is a point of arrival both for the individual and for the group. For the individual, as we said, the silence is the outcome of development. As we know that the young child is, is creating themselves. They're creating and constructing their movements, their will, their intelligence. And it is that work of the child during this period between three and six years of age to integrate the workings of thought, will, and action so that they are working in harmony. This is what Montessori called the integration of personality right, what she referred to as normalization, the harmonizing of mind and body. The child who is able to participate in the silence game is a child who has achieved a level of integration such that their will can control their actions guided by their intelligence. So first of all, every child must understand the common endeavor to make silence, and then they must choose to participate. After that, every child wills to inhibit all actions that are not conducive to silence. They control their voluntary movements of the body. They control their speech. They even try to quieten their breathing and control the tickle in their throat or that urge to sneeze or cough. So it is an expression of a power that I have over my actions and of an awareness of how my actions can then affect the group. For the group, the silence game is an evidence of cohesion in the social group, that every individual is willing to do their bit to carry out the choice of the group. 
So here we see the aligning of the individual will to the will of the larger group. It is just true expression of social cohesion, a sense of belonging to a group and choosing to carry out the will of the group. Not only is my will in tune with the will of the group, I can then align my actions with others' actions to achieve the common goals of silence. So it is a choice to participate, but once this choice is made, then I have a responsibility to the group. I can choose not to participate, but that also requires that then I remove myself from the space so that I respect the will of the group to practice, to create silence. And that reflects social awareness and consciousness of the impact of my actions on the group. So unlike in traditional education settings, silence that is made during the silence game is not evidence of the power of the adult over the child, the control of the adult over the child, but evidence of the power of each child over themselves, the control of each child over their own actions, as well as evidence of a sense of belonging to the group. In the silence game, the silence is an end in itself. As Peter said, in traditional education settings, silence and stillness on part of the child is a prerequisite for adults teaching. That is a passive silence. But the practice of silence in the silence game is an active silence. The child is engaged with their whole personality in making that silence. So, and so that activity itself becomes developmental, supporting the further growth of the child's personality. And as Montessori writes, when one has control over oneself, one becomes freed from the control of others. The silence game is an expression of both individual and social development. It is an expression of independence as well as interdependence. Right? The ability to create and enjoy silence is an expression of inner peace, of inner harmony. Think about how many adults we know who need to turn on music or have the TV on in order to fill any silence. There are so many studies that have been done to show that silence is a human need. But as Peter said, there's very little opportunity for silence in the daily life of children and of adults. Children love the silence game. It fulfills a need of the spirit. And you can see and feel the quiet joy that results from this game when you play this game. But I want to take some time to go beyond the silence game and think about silence and the key role it plays in all Montessori environments, in all Montessori environments for all ages. And I will talk about this as silence in action. Let me explain that a little bit. Let's consider the role of the adult in a Montessori classroom. The understanding that the work of the adult is to aid the child's work of creative self-construction. So right here, we see a shift in the power dynamics between the adult and the child that is very different from traditional education. Here we have the child at the center and the adult playing a supportive role, aligning their actions to the developmental imperatives of the child. So the adult channels their help to the child's work, not directly, but through the prepared environment and through the materials. And in creating this prepared environment, every object in the environment is chosen with care, with an understanding of the child's sensitive periods, their developmental needs. We want the child 
and the adolescent to hear the voices of the materials, the voices of the things in the environment, calling to them, to care for them, to explore them, to use them. The adult's role is to facilitate this engagement with the environment. And for this, observation is the key. And when we talk about observation, let's think that when we observe, it requires silence on the part of the educator. We must silence our biases. We have to silence our prejudgments and we have to listen to the child's voice. So such observation puts us in deep communication with the child and their inner work of creative self-construction. So observation again is active. It is an engagement with the spirit of the child. And once we observe, we can choose our action. We can choose action that is intense, intentional, that supports the child's work. And that is just necessary and sufficient to stimulate and nourish the child's work. It is through observation that we know what activities to link the child to. The communication we want to facilitate is between the child and the environment, between the child and the material, because we understand that learning comes from the child's activity. And that is what we do through our presentations. We link the child to the activities. And what do we do during our presentations? Take for example, and my examples will be from the three to six environment, um, because that's what I'm most familiar with. For example, our practical life activities in the casa, right? When we show the child how to pour or how to wash a table or how to polish an object, we keep our language to a minimum. It's our actions that show what must be done, how we must do it, and what the end uh, result looks like. It is a communication through action. Do we offer these exercises to the child as tools that they can use in order to respond to the needs of their daily life? The child hears the voice of the objects in the environment, they, the plant that needs watering, the object that needs dusting, and uses these skills in order to respond to the needs of the environment. If we look at the sensorial materials, again, when we offer the child, the cylinder blocks, or the pink tower, or the sound boxes. Our work is to demonstrate how to handle the material, how to organize the material, and how this, what the steps of the activity are. The child then works with that material and builds an understanding of color, or shape, or size, or sound, right? And when we observe the child's activity, we get an insight in what is happening within the child. Again, that communication with the, what, with the inner work of the child is what happens during observation. When the child matches to object to color tablets, we know who that child has developed a perception of that color, right? There's a developing awareness of that sound, of that color. And when we observe that, we are able to offer language to crystallize the perception to help it become a concept that help it become an abstraction. We give the child tools to communicate this perception when they need to do so. And here is again evidence of the importance of silence on the part of the adult. Just as much we did, uh, as we did not force silence in the silence game, we do not force communication. We offer the tools, the language, 
And when the child is ready, the expression happens, right? So for example, when we do those exercises in community living, what we commonly call our grace and courtesy lessons, right? We show the child what to do and what to say in different um, situations in community life, right? And then what we do is create a social life that requires the practice of these uh, protocols where the child experiences in daily life the practice of these courtesies. And when the child is ready, the child spontaneously uses these tools for interactions in their daily life. We are not haunting them say, in saying, say yes, say please, say thank you. It's a spontaneous expression, just as much as the child responds to a wilting plant by watering, the child uses these tools in their daily uh, community life, right? So silence again on the part of the adult is so critical. Because once the child, adult has linked the child to the material, our role is to observe. Observation is not a passive exercise. It is active engagement to the child, with the child. It is a dynamic, active silence where communication continues. And following such observation, we need, what we need is reflection. Reflection to determine if and when we need to act and how we need to act. When we see errors happening in that activity, we need to reflect. Do we need to act? If so, when do we need to offer that help? How do we need to offer the help? And we always follow what we call the principle of subsidiarity. That means as much as possible, we're acting through the environment or we're acting through the material. Very rarely does the adult directly go and correct and um, uh, change things, right? So again, we, our work is silence in action. We work unobtrusively. And once we have linked the child to the material, we also respect the child's rhythm of work. However long they want to work with the material, we respect that. And when the work is done, we need to respect the, need time, the time that is needed to ponder over what I've done. After the deep engagement, I need some reflection, reflection time as a, uh, as a child. We are not taunting them to say, okay, what are you going to do now? What are you going to do now? Right, okay. Silence is essential for reflection and assimilation. So I do want to clarify something here. When I speak about the role of silence in our practice, it does not mean that we must have silent classrooms, quite the opposite. Even in our Montessori classrooms, sometimes there is too little spoken language in many of our children's houses, too much expectations of quiet and silence. This again, I would ask us to reflect on how is this a misuse of the adult's power over the child and how it is counter to the essence of our practice to create the conditions of freedom to follow the natural path to development. For the young child who's creating and constructing language, there's a need of lot of spoken language offered by the adult and by the community. Spoken language and communication is an essential part of the prepared environment. The key reflection for us as adults is how are we using language? When are we using language? Are we using language to connect the child to the environment? Are we using language to communicate and exchange thoughts and ideas? 
is active listening a part of what we do? Or are we using language to direct, to limit, to control, to silence the child's voice and action? Montessori writes very eloquently about the need to use the power of the adult for the preparation of the environment and the materials for development. To create what she said, I'm only asking you to do something very simple, create the conditions of freedom for the child's natural development. She talks about diminishing our presence so that the child's personality may expand. So the role of silence in Montessori practice is really about inhibition of the adult's power and action so that we are creating a space where the child can realize their potential more fully. This is silence in action. So when we talk about the educational value of silence in Montessori practice, it is about creating that space for the child to find their voice, to realize their potential. When done well, uh, with, a, with our preparation, our practice, our Montessori practice is then evidence of silence in action. This is one to, uh, what I want to offer you for reflection and happy to take questions, observations. Okay, well, thank you so much, Uma. This is very enlightening. And when we look at the chat, we can also see a great many uh, observations that saying that how wonderfully you've phrased certain insights. Um, you've made so many connections, uh, it's far, so it's <laughs> hardly any way I could possibly uh, summarize, but it, it goes from the way you demonstrated the, you know, the silence by when you whispered to, and you said that the voice of the environment also speaks and that you have to develop that so that you can hear it and act upon it and respect the time that the child needs to reflect upon the work you know that they they've done i mean there's just too many things but anyway so we'll sh share a few things from the chat do you do you have any tips for inspiring silence in order to manage state mandated nap times. So as a Montessorian that um, she finds the practice of forcing sleep on a schedule midday quite difficult to do, but she doesn't have the option. Um, so she feels like she has to enforce uh, the silence during you know scheduled nap time. So here again, we come to the power of the adult over the child and it comes becomes an exercise of power. So I think the reflection is about the exercise of power versus oppression versus liberation. And I think, you know, if you are, if you are, if there are state mandates, then you're going to reflect on how can I creatively manage the time to, so that we are liberating the child to arrive at that uh, point of rest or silence rather than enforcing and requiring the child to do that. And that's again comes back to this understanding of preparation of the child before we, the silence is again, you know, the silence that we're talking about is not a uh, um, not to satisfy a state mandate or to satisfy uh, the adult's need, but to, it's an expression of the child's um, 
development and their alignment with the social goals. So I think we have to really come back, keep thinking about that over and over again in our role as Montessorians and how can we then advocate for the child's voice to be liberated in different situations. Okay, great. Then I have a question which I'm not sure um, if it is a question, but I'll read it out anyway. Um, isn't there a kind of silence when the child is engrossed in his work and reaches polarized concentration? Can we look at this moment as a moment when the child is engaged with his or her inner guide? A moment when he or she isn't aware of the people around him or happenings around him? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. You know, that's again, Again, an example of silence in action, but within the child, within each child. Yeah. Okay. And another question is about element, the elementary environment. What do you think of silence exercises in elementary? And again, I think that we have to come back to the developmental needs of the children and what does that look like for the oh, child in the uh, between six and 12 years of age and when and where and what is a place for it and how does it become an expression of the agreement of the individual to participate in a group endeavor. And that we know that there are um, six to 12 children love to participate um, in group endeavor and uh, to collaborate and cooperate in group, group endeavors. What form it takes is something we have to, they have to choose to uh, do. Yeah. Right. Uma, do you have a question for Peter, actually? Would you have a question for, for Peter from his talk, perhaps? I do. I mean, I just, you know, I keep coming back to Peter's um, affirmation of, you know, this uh, question of power. And I think that is, uh, and your what you said that um, uh, the implications for a democratic society. How are we exercising and uh, this power and liberating the child? And what kind of society are we looking ahead? So, Peter, I would love to really explore that a little more about this idea that uh, what we are preparing the child for is what something else. You know, like what does what kind of uh, an individual then? because participatory in this uh, more equitable, just, peaceful society when they have an experience of silence at this level. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I think that's, uh, that's a very important question, uh, Uma. And uh, I would like, first of all, to thank you for a very clear and, and, and very inspiring uh, talk. So thank you very much uh, for that. And also thank you very much for pointing towards the fact that the history I presented was indeed uh, a Western history. I think that is very important to, to emphasize uh, uh, once more. So, so thank you. Uh, in response to your question, I, 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 uh, I think I, I can best refer not to uh, an article I, I myself wrote, I wish I had, but it's, uh, uh, it's written by, by a colleague. It's written by a, by a British historian of education, a wonderful colleague, and her name is Catherine Burke, Cathy uh, Burke. And she wrote an article entitled uh, Quiet Stories of Educational Design. 
And in the chapter, it's actually a chapter in a book, uh, she describes how in the post-war British uh, period, so 1945 till 1955, uh, British schools were increasingly being rebranded uh, by architects, uh, but also together with educators in such a way that the schools would become spaces where democratic citizens could be formed, could be, could be produced, so to say. And very interesting, uh, and this is what Katy Burke demonstrates in her piece, is that actually it was precisely at that moment that quiet spaces started to pop up in British schools. Uh, so these were uh, spaces like uh, below uh, staircases, uh, they started to put uh, pillows uh, so children could retreat themselves a little bit uh, from uh, the noisy classroom or just from the classroom uh, in general in order to reflect on what the teacher was being telling them was telling them and this stood really in sharp contrast uh, with yeah the more uh, totalitarian approaches towards education uh, which were very much dominant in the in the 30s and definitely also in the 40s not only in germany and other European countries, but also definitely in, in, in Britain. And so I think this is a wonderful example uh, of how particular, very tangible, quiet practices, I would call them, uh, are definitely linked to attempts in order to bring a child towards yeah, a particular, with a difficult word, subjectivity, towards a particular yeah, kind of citizenship. And in this example, it definitely is the democratic citizenship. So in response to your question, I, I yeah, I immediately think about uh, this wonderful uh, article chapter by my by my colleague. And, and for me, the gist of, of the example is that when we think about silence, we never should forget uh, all of the societal connotations, the societal meanings that are attached uh, to it. And so that is also what yeah, I kind of criticize in the objectifying approaches towards silence, where uh, you have psychologists, you have educationalists who kind of measure uh, the sound levels in schools and then say, well, hey, these are just too noisy educational environments and it's really bad for the learning trajectories of the child. I, I don't think that that is the right way to, to approach it. it. It's interesting and it's valuable in itself, but I, I would like to emphasize that the other approach definitely should not be forgotten. So that is, that is what I would like to respond to. Great. And... Um... From the chat, we also have a couple of questions for you. Uh, two of them are related to your, the last slide you showed of the children in the circle with the dice. And people was wondering, um, what were the symbols? Um, actually, and what do they mean? And, and okay. actually also, where is this exhibit on? Should people okay. travel to Belgium? Okay, yeah. Uh, so 
the exhibition is actually now on display in Leuven. Uh, so this is a, a provincial uh, city very close to Brussels. Uh, by train, it only takes you uh, seven minutes. Uh, so, and all of you are definitely welcome, uh, but you have to be quick uh, because the exhibition only uh, will be open up till the end of uh, October. So we close the exhibition the 13th uh, of October. Uh, we have the idea of, uh, or maybe it's more like a hope uh, that we can make the exhibition travel. I mean, the concept is there and I think it's very easily to, to print the drawings also in another museum, also in another school, and put uh, the, the, the exhibition up uh, there, uh, even without the historical documents that we made use of. Uh, so if anyone would be interested, please do contact uh, me and we can see uh, what, uh, what is possible. But to come back to the question, so we, we made use of this dice. On the dice, uh, we have several animals. Uh, we have a, a rooster, so a male chicken. Uh, we have a mice, we have a spider. Uh, we have a fish, uh, and these uh, animals, they kind of symbolize a particular fragment from the educational history of silence. And, and maybe just to give one example, to elaborate a little bit on one example, uh, I would like to, to mention the rooster, uh, so the male chicken. And actually, uh, uh, this was the animal which always was put on the front cover of reading manuals. Uh, so manuals that were used by children, but also teachers in order to learn how to read. Uh, there was always up till the end of the, of the 18th, the middle of the 19th century, a rooster uh, on, the, on the cover of those manuals. And the reason for that was that actually the reading didactics up till that time were uh, uh acoustic uh, they they made use of of a of a vocalized reading didactics uh, so children had to read aloud in order to learn how to read and this was actually heavily criticized towards the end of the 19th century on the basis of psychological experiments uh, that uh demonstrated that reading aloud actually took more time, it costed more time uh, than uh, reading in a silent way. And what you see is that around 1900, first of all, in the United States of America, and then uh, it also crossed the Atlantic. And I can imagine that it also traveled uh, to other parts of the world, uh, that the reading didactics moved towards uh, an emphasis on silent reading. Uh, learning to read in silence uh, because that was more efficient it uh, was more speedy and this was the thing that were needed uh, in the new and the modern societies that were uh, uh, emerging at that time so just as a response to uh, to the question yeah and talking about responses one final question here um did sort of the educational community in Marie Montessori's time have a response to her silence game? Did they react to it or? Sorry? You know how it was received by other educators? Uh, yes. Uh, so, so the question is how that uh, Maria Montessori's ideas about silence were, were uh, received? 
yeah well they yeah, yeah received by other, other by other educators yeah absolutely so in my book i have a section on um actually a, a very intriguing debate uh, between montessori montessorians and co communist educators uh who uh had also very uh, uh, particular ideas about silence. And so at least in the Flemish and the Dutch context, I discovered several publications of communist educators that said, well, hey, we really have to be critical about these ideas of Maria Montessori uh, on silence. Because for us, they are really too much focusing on the individual. And I was very glad that actually Uma presented uh, the, uh, the, the ideas of Montessori in a different way, because of course, the individual and the social, they come wonderfully together in the Montessori exercises. But that was not something uh, which was uh, sensed as such by the communist thinkers. And on top of that, uh, what was being said is that uh, uh, Maria Montessori, her ideas about silence, they were way too religious. Uh, actually, the method was also blessed by the Pope, uh, by the Pope, uh, apologies, and for the communist thinkers, of course, the communist authors for whom religion was a kind of drug, uh, which kind of was used in order to seduce uh, and to paralyze uh, the, 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 the laborers, uh, the employees, uh, this was a bridge too far. And so for those two reasons, uh, at least from that particular perspective, uh, the Maria Montessori uh, methods uh, on silence were, were heavily criticized. Yeah. I think, Peter, that we do need to keep reflecting on this. This is where the need to silence our biases come in, because we quite often the, we silence uh, things that are not, you know, we silence voices we don't want to hear. And so this continues to happen in our society today. We don't hear voices that we are unfamiliar with that are different from us. We don't want to listen to those voices. So I think this coming back to this practice of silencing within ourselves, the preparation of the adult for uh, the practice of this uh, liberating the child of creating conditions of freedom comes back to sil practicing silencing within ourselves more than, you know, a lot of questions have come about like, what do we do to a child too? Then again, I think that is a <laughs> that is a perspective we must shift because we don't do anything to the child. The child. Mm -hmm. This is a as you know, Master train always used to say, "Ours is a, it's a reflective, uh, reflexive action." You know, the child's work it acts on themselves. We are not. It's a, not a transitive action. The adult is not forming the child. The child adult is not molding the child. We are just facilitating the child's work of forming themselves. And so again, when we ask those questions, what do we do with, I think we need to begin with our reflection on ourselves and our ability to be silent and, and uh, allow the emergence of the child. Yeah. Absolutely, Uma, I, I totally agree. 
And, and uh, this is actually also what I found in the writings of Maria Montessori, which are kept uh, at the archives of the AMI, uh, which uh, Joke uh, so wonderfully shared with me. So in several of the lectures uh, that uh, Maria Montessori uh, gave for Montessori teachers in order to teach them, uh, she referred to the difficulties also involved in order to suppress one's own voices and in one of the lectures this was described as following she says well we did the exercises ourselves huh? so apparently she invited also the the, uh, the the teachers that followed her training in order to become silent and what she noticed is that the teachers at that time they continued to take notes huh? so they they took continuously notes and what she mentioned in her own writings is that the taking of the notes, it produced still sounds. So they were not able to silence themselves, although that was precisely the exercise. And so this was also something that you referred to as, 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 as a sign of the difficulties involved, uh, the difficulties that we should overcome in order to indeed silence our own voices in order to be able to listen, to understand uh, the voices of the other, another human being, but also, as you referred to Uma uh, very rightly, also the voices of the world uh, that, that invite us to become, uh, to become active, absolutely. Okay, I think we have a few more questions left in, in, in the chat, but I think we have to uh, wrap up. So everyone who has their questions unanswered, uh, please send them in to our info address and we'll make sure they reach either Uma or Peter or both. And um, again, you will send us any sort of additional references that you've used so that we can share them with everybody. Um, uh, thank you to everybody in the chat who expresses their appreciation for both these wonderful uh, presentations. Um, yeah, I can only say reiterate the same. So um, we're going to end the, the, the meeting uh, for all here. So I'm afraid, yeah, we could go on forever, I think. So many questions, <laughs> this is triggering. Um, but we, we thank both of you very much, Peter and Uma, for great presentations and we'll be in touch soon, I'm sure. Thanks again. <laughs>